Season's greetings. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple Best in Indiana Journalism Award-winning public affairs program now in its 14th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. While the Bring It On crew takes a break for New Year's, we have produced a special Bring It On broadcast highlighting a relevant interview from this year that features several fascinating people and riveting topics. On tonight's show, we are re-airing a broadcast from August the 6th of this year. This extended interview features Bring It On anchors William Hosea and Jim Sims, who are joined by Daniel Barron, Jordan Chifris, Maria Hamilton Abagunde, and Pamela Jackson, members of the Bloomington Noah's Ark design team. They joined us to help shed some light on a unique journey of discovery and community dialogue that seeks to address issues of race, racism, and healing. Here now is that interview from August 6th of this year. Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 13 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening, folks. I'm Jim Sams. And whoo, William, it's good to be back. It's been a while. Good to have you back, too, All Jim. right. In today's special Bring It On broadcast, we have invited members of the Bloomington Noah's Ark design team. They're here to shed light on a unique journey of discovery for our listeners to participate in. So stay tuned for the next hour right here on Bring It On. As mentioned, Bloomington Noah's Ark Community Project represents a journey, an interfaith dialogue exploration of faith, racism, privilege, and healing. As a volunteer group, Noah's Ark chose this name in 2011 to demonstrate the inclusiveness of their efforts. Noah is a symbol for us all because he opened the ark to all living creatures. The word journey expresses a recognition that understanding, understanding across different faiths and racial divides takes a journey to accomplish. Now, last year's project involved the creation of interfaith dialogue groups in which over 80 people participated. Each of 11 groups had seven to eight people of different faiths who met once a month in a member's home or place of worship. There was a faith topic for conversation each time, and these evolved to be more challenging and complex as the groups progressed. Participants were asked for a six-month initial commitment at the start. Today, six groups are still active more than a year later because they found the experience so personally enriching. Joining us are Daniel Barron by phone, Jordan Schifres, Maria Hamilton Abugande. Maria, I practice all those syllables for, you know, before we came on the air. Good job. And Pamela Brayboy Jackson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bring It On. Uh, Daniel, are you there? I am. Thank you so much. Awesome. Right. Awesome. Did you guys hear the audience applauding? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hi, Daniel. How you doing? Really, really well. Thanks, William. Okay. So I, I'm going to uh, 
start off with, uh, you all heard the introduction or, or how we described uh, Noah's Ark in our introduction. So mm-hmm. do you want to build upon that? Tell us a little bit more, define it a little bit more before yeah. to get us started? Yeah. Um, it started out as an interfaith dialogue project because of the, you know, after 9-11, um, there was so much um, uh, religious hatred coming out. And um, it has continued and intensified more recently. And uh, we thought that having a a dialogue project in which people could really develop relationships over time and really get to know each other uh, would be really valuable. But we found out um, after we had a celebration, after six-month commitment that you talked about, um, we realized that Um, we needed to take a little different direction and look at the issue of racism, privilege, and the healing of it through the faith lens. So um, that's how we got to this new project. And um, dialogue really means um, it's not just any conversation. You're not trying to uh, beat somebody like in a debate you're not trying to platform. You're not trying to put anybody down. It's about us understanding each other, hopefully like will happen here this evening. Um, oh, okay, and if I may join in, and don't lose that thought. We want to keep on track here just Yeah, hang second. on to that. So uh, now that we have a little bit of uh, our introduction out of the way, and uh, Jordan, you kind of expound on that a little bit, let's try and frame our conversation with a brief audio clip of noted African-American social activist, Ruby Sales. She's sharing her thoughts on the topic of where does it hurt. So I want to start where I always start my conversations uh, by just asking how you would start to talk about uh, what was the spiritual background of your childhood? I grew up in the South. I'm from three generations of Southern Baptist preachers. My father was a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, and a chaplain in the army. And I was bred on black folk religion. It was a religion that combined the ideals of American democracy with a theological sense of justice. It was a religion that said that people who were considered property and disposable were essential in the eyes of God, and even essential in a democracy, although we were enslaved. And it was a religion where the language Hmm. and the symbols were accessible, that the God talk was accessible to even seven-year-olds. As a seven-year-old, I could sing 50 songs without missing a line. And everybody in the community had access to the theological microphone. So as a little black girl growing up in the South, I was deeply influenced by, by this black folk religion. You, you, you said something to Vincent Harding. You said, religion for me growing up in Columbus, Georgia, was the ground that I stood on that positioned us to stand against the wind. 
The winds, yes, to stand against the winds of Southern apartheid, mm -hmm. to stand against the winds. How do I describe? I grew up in the, in the heart of Southern apartheid, and I'm not saying that I didn't realize that it existed, but our parents were spiritual geniuses who created a wor world and a language where the notion that I was inadequate or inferior or less than never touched my consciousness. I grew up believing that I was a first-class human being and a first-class person, and our parents were spiritual geniuses who were able to shape a counterculture of religion, black folk religion that raised us from disposability to being essential players in society. And it also taught us something serene about love. I love everybody. I love everybody. I love everybody in my heart. And so hate was not anything in our vocabulary. I hate was not in your vocabulary. Absolutely not. Now, that was the first of several brief audio clips of Ruby Sales with On Being host Krista Trippett. Ruby Sales, or I should say Miss Ruby Sales, is a civil rights icon and founder and director of the Spirit House Project. She is one of 50 African Americans to be spotlighted in the new Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. Um, now, part of our conversation can be couched around this little snippet we just heard. Um, and this is such a broad topic, so we won't shut yeah. anyone down with, with kind of where we're going. Um, but you just heard what, what she just said, and um, I was very, very impressed with the I love everybody, and, and you repeat that, sort of like I'm a soothing mantra. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things from my standpoint, and I, I don't say this with any particular reasoning or anything, but Sunday mornings is the most segregated time frame in the United States. I, I think most would agree with us um, because most of our religious services, we go to churches that are, we're with our own people, so to speak. Um, and, and that's always struck me as, as William said earlier, that churches or, or religious um, institutions can hinder or can be perceived as hindrance to race relations um, and, and those of us getting along. And I think many people point to that on Sunday. So that's, that's just a point I like to make. I don't think there's rhyme or reason to it. Um, I don't believe it because we, after when we go to church and when we leave, then we go out to do good and hopefully to build better race relations and treat people the way um, um, scripture says. Um, any comments on that? And Daniel, you can jump in as well, sir. Thank you. Actually, I, I think uh, Pam could really bring some rhyme and reason to what you just shared. Um, and he said that Pam could just add some rhyme and reason to what we just shared. <laughs> so she don't have on headphones, so I'll paraphrase that. So. Okay. Go right ahead, man. Okay, sure. I think I'll um I'll just uh, reiterate what you said. Uh, that all institutions, actually, not just our religious institutions in the United States, were segregated. Um, especially, we see this um, during the Reconstruction era, and um, eventually, de jure segregation happened. So, over time, uh, both our religious institutions, all of our communities, in terms of our neighborhoods. Uh, were uh, purposefully segregated 
and they continue to be so for the most part. I mean, we uh, do have some churches that are uh, typically non-denominational, or you might have the universalist uh, churches uh, that are more integrated, but the majority of our religious institutions in the U.S. Um, have maintained that level of racial segregation. I agree. So would you say over the years churches have been more uh, influential in, in racial segregation than than other institutions? I think churches were used as a tool uh, mm-hmm. to maintain segregation. And um, in terms of kind of the positive elements of that, then churches can be used to undermine uh, segregation and at least the uh, the ideology that was surrounding segregation. Okay, Maria, we have just a couple minutes before we do the next clip. Um, is, there, is there anything you would like to jump in? So I want to just say that one of the great things about the Noah's Ark uh, project is understanding that churches are places of segregation, but we have been intentional about meeting at different churches and also acknowledging that not everyone meets on Sunday for church because it is an interfaith community and it is an interfaith dialogue. These things are a priority for us. I think in keeping with that clip as well in terms of the spiritual aspect of the work, race and religion are important together as intersections because religion is often the first place that one comes to understand his or her place in the world as being human or being a being in the world. And so our focus is having these conversations in different spaces of different kinds with different people to get to the heart of what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to exist in the world with a set of beliefs that help us to understand or not understand or impede our understanding of other people? Jim, could I intervene? Yes. Yeah, yeah I'd like to build on Abhigande's wisdom. Um, segregation is uh, it's easier to like and respect and trust people who are similar to you. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, why do all the black kids sit together in the lunchroom? It's because they feel comfortable and accepted by their peers and very often don't when they're with kids of different ethnic backgrounds or races. And, um, but we are all human. And I think one of the hallmarks of all religions is is, is uh, modern religions is that there's one God, and that one God serves all people, and that the role of religion is to help us, um, to help us live into the fullness of our humanity. And as Martin Luther King said, that I can't be all that I ought to be until you are all that you ought to be, and you can't be all that you ought to be until I am all that I ought to be. This is the network of mutuality. That's the, the underpinnings of the universe. And the dialogue across differences is how we come to understand and respect multiple perspectives and how we come to see the humanity that each of us holds so dear. And, and our tagline for the project, I think, may really sum up what the whole project's about. Um, Martin Luther King a great hero of mine of so many countless people, 
he had the notion in his theology of the beloved community. And that beloved community was across difference, across racial difference, across religious difference, across nationalities, across the genders. And what, what, he, what he said was that in a beloved community, that's where we learn to love across differences. And the purpose of Noah's Ark, in just a phrase, is to create a beloved community, one dialogue at a time. And we see that happening every time we sit in a circle to talk about issues that are deeply important and significant to what it means to be fully human. Okay, very good point. Thank you, and we'll come right back to you. Our engineer is about to play another clip, if I'm not mistaken, um, so we can all just listen, if we will. But you, you do make this really important distinction between black folk religion, which is what, which is what nourished you, which yes. is what formed you, and the black church and black preachers, which are in the picture, but which is mostly what we've seen as the picture. And, and you, you, know, you say in one place that, that the heart of the Southern Freedom Movement, it wasn't as much black preachers as it was black congregations, ordinary people, who participated in extraordinary things on this foundation that you're describing. Well, first of all, black folk religion grew up in the bush harbors on plantations. And those were these... these, uh, There were no buildings. There there was not an institutionalized church. It was like outdoors in a sanctuary tree, secret meetings. Yes, yes, yes. It was a gathering spot for the community. It, It was in this setting that black people began to talk about God in this society where they were enslaved. So it was not, and everybody participated, the spirituals came up out of this environment and everyone had a voice in the conversation. So it was not as if the preacher's voice was the most primary and most essential voice. It was participatory. It was black folk religion. It was ordinary black people and not black preachers. Most black preachers stood over and against the movement. Mm -hmm. But it was really ordinary black people in the South who really forced the church to allow mass meetings and other places to meet there. And Martin Luther King should not be seen as the black church he came out of, of black folk religion and was part of the Southern Freedom Movement. Okay, that was another brief audio clip of civil rights icon and theologian Ruby Sales, founder and director of the Spirit House Project. We have about uh, five short minutes before we uh, air the next clip. So does somebody want to give us your thoughts on that previous clip? Yeah, I just I just wanted to add a couple of things. Number one, just to... Um, to maybe think about the words that we use. Uh, congregations would include Beth Shalom, of which I'm a member, I'm Jewish, and we don't call it a church. And of course, our Bloomington Mosque is not called a church either. So I think when we're thinking about interfaith, we're talking about different congregations, different faiths, not necessarily different churches. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is we just finished our second uh, foundational experience and maybe Abigundi wants to elaborate on this. Uh, <coughs> the two clips that were brought up were things that were brought up in our foundational experience, which was a day and a half introspection and 
uh, dialogue between people who become facilitators for our dialogue groups. And uh, one of the points that was brought up about a love and um, hate, we had a very long dialogue about how people viewed love and how do you deal with hate. So um, that was very relevant to what we just went through this weekend. You know, it's pretty uh, clear. We're only going to touch on the tip, the tip of the spear uh, on this topic. That is true. And and if I may, William, I'll get into part of the clip and what was just said is, and then she said that most preachers stood against the movement. Um, and, And I think it's not so much against the movement, but as opposed to being overly supportive of the movement. Um, and, and that strikes me in particularly with the historical influences against the African American community, um, uh, that of institutionalized racism and coming away from slavery and, and some of the prejudices and, and the, the privilege now and, and all of these things. It seems like a daunting task for something that what Noah's Ark is, is doing. Um, and part of what, what I'm getting at is how do you see this moving forward and how it can be very positively influenced on society? Um, and this isn't something that's going to happen in a week. <laughs> I'm quite sure of that. Um, but I like to, uh, most things I, I try to deal with, it, it comes with a vision. What? So I'd like, to, I'd like to respond. Go ahead, Daniel. we got about three minutes before the next clip. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, yeah the, you know, most institutions large institutions that have a, a degree of power um, tend to support the status quo because the status quo serves them well. And, um, and clearly Noah's Ark is an interruption of the status quo. Um, it, and, I, and I think the, the greatest indicator of that is that of our dialogue groups of eight people, there will be a black and a white facilitator sharing the facilitation role, sharing the power of facilitation with each other openly and transparently. And of the other six members of that dialogue group, at least two will be black. So in every group of eight people, there'll be three black members of each dialogue group. And the reason we felt it was so critically important for that to happen is because very often in our interracial interactions, particularly in institutions, black people are often in the minority and are very, often a very small minority. And it's easy to feel marginalized. It's easy to feel as if you're speaking as a representative of your race and the burden of that responsibility can be silencing and overpowering. So we won't have, we'll only have as many groups. This can be at least 40% black. And I don't need to remind our viewers that this community is overwhelmingly white. So we are interrupting the status quo of that white privilege of comfort, of, not, of being able to talk about racism and race, not in front of our, our brothers and sisters of color, but to engage intimately and deeply with them around the most troubling aspects of where our country is along the racial divide in 2018. Okay, Daniel, and I'll share with everyone else here. Uh, the next clip will be in at about 15 minutes or so. Or so. Um, but one of the things that, that has struck me is does the, diff- the lived experiences of different groups, is that addressed in the Noah's Ark 
um, piece in, in the community dialogue. Um, and we'll listen to the next clip uh, approximately now. And, and one of the things I start to understand as I listen to you and read you is that a lot of the themes that, uh, you know, that when I talk to somebody like John Lewis, when I hear about how the, or, or, or Vincent Harding, how the philosophy of nonviolence was developed, and, and, you know, they were studying Gandhi and Thoreau and Jesus and practicing and doing role-playing. But what I understand from you is that a lot of the elements of that actually were, in, in black, black folk, folk religion. Yes. So when you say you learn to lay love. down my sword and shield down by the riverside, down by the riverside, and study war no more. Yeah. Nonviolence. When you look at black spirituals, you hear a theology and a philosophy of nonviolence. And so that this was an essential part a black folk religion. It was not a retaliatory um, religion. It was a religion predicated on right relations and love and nonviolence. Now that was wow. another brief audio clip of civil rights icon and theologian Ruby Sales with On Being host Krista Trippett. Ruby Sales is the founder and director of the Spirit House Project. <clears throat> and at this point, um, the conversation continues. Um, and just before that, and obviously we just heard what she just said, but um, I brought up the, the issue, or the item, I should say, of how do we share l different lived experiences between races and cultures. Um, <clears throat> Sister Abigunde? Jordan mentioned the foundational experience. So as part of the training for facilitators anyone who wanted to facilitate was invited to participate in a foundational experience. That was designed in such a way that over a day and a half period, people would do different activities that would give them periods of time to learn about each other's religions, to hear stories about their lives, whether around religion or race, and to also do a lot of introspection about what they were hearing, but also how they were socialized around religion and race. You know, what did they do on, on Sundays? How did they first learn about, um, about different races? And so the idea is that if we are able to have these conversations with each other, small groups, right, so we're not talking about groups of 50 at either time, but small groups that provide an opportunity for people to be vulnerable, for through guided activities to be very specific or as specific as they are able to at the moment to think about how each person in the group has lived their lives and to listen. The listening is a large component of the dialogue process. To listen and to sometimes listen without providing a response. So just in fact being the receiver of the information. Um, each person in the group is also provided with a journal. So what can't be said at a particular time may need to be articulated at a different time. And that gives people the time overnight to actually go home, to reflect on what has been said and bring it back to the group if necessary. So it is daunting. Mm -hmm. um, yes. However, the community who has chosen to participate has made a commitment to do this work. Um, 
regardless of this. That's, that's very interesting. And one of the things I, I say often is that the good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And, <laughs> and I think that basically kind of have just <laughs> clarified some of the things that I mean by that. Um, Can I build yes, on Pamela? that? Oh, oh sorry. I'm sorry. I think ahead, Pamela. Oh, I was just going to um, add, of course, that um, we don't anticipate resolving or solving the problem of racism, um, especially here in Bloomington, oh, if we darn. were to stay local, right? <laughs> um, but we can create an environment for open conversation about this very difficult topic. And from there, we hope that, <clears throat> excuse me, especially um, our dialogue groups will take action to do something or become active in the community in meaningful ways. Um, and we talked a little bit about uh, some of the things people might do uh, as they volunteer in schools or volunteer to help in hospitals or even volunteer in different aspects um, uh, with law enforcement such that the information that they gain from the dialogue groups on these topics of race, racism, privilege, and faith, that all of that information that they, they gain over the nine-month period or the time that they meet, they take that out with them. Uh, into the community and so make whatever environment uh, that they come in contact with or whatever agency they volunteer in, they will make that better. And so that's what we, we see as sort of the, the action moment for these dialogue groups. Thank you. Mr. Schiffers. Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to uh, address the lived experience. Uh, at the beginning when we had just faith dialogues, some people were concerned about participating in them because they didn't feel as if they were experts. We said, you're expert about your own experience. And that's what we're talking, the same thing about race, you know, race, racism, faith, and healing. You're, you know yourself, and hopefully you'll learn more about yourself <laughs> as well as about others yeah. as you go through this experience. Now, we're looking at this as a really long road, okay? You asked about the future. Yes. First time we asked for a six-month commitment, here we're asking for nine, and we're saying, oh my gosh, look at all of what we're not gonna talk about. But part of what happens as you begin these conversations, you know, you could feel it in a room this weekend at the foundational experience. I mean, relationships are created, hearts are touched, um, minds are opened. Um, and that's not to say that there won't be hard times. That's not to say that along the journey, all of us won't stumble and fall. But we're hoping to create a kind of atmosphere where we'll pick each other up. Along Are you way. talking about the journey uh, with your group or people's personal journeys? Um, <laughs> could have been taken both ways. I was specifically talking about the dialogue group but I think it applies to life in general. Okay, I, I had a question for Abu Gandhi. You mentioned that you want people to be vulnerable. Did I hear you correctly? I did not say that I wanted them to be vulnerable, just that the space provides an opportunity for people to be vulnerable. Okay, but I'm assuming that's a good thing. It is a good thing. Okay. It can be a good thing. Why it, would that? Why, why do you? Why is it good? It good for people to be vulnerable? 
To be vulnerable in the in this <clears throat> definition and in this context means that you are willing to take a risk to be open as possible to put um, both <clears throat> your heart, well, your heart, mind, and soul um, on the table for someone else to see it. So we, uh, in the the history of the United States, there's a lot of secrecy, there's a lot of denial, there's a, not, a lot of amnesia. What we are asking around race and around even selective who we are. Amnesia. Um, selective and um, very deliberate. Um, what we are asking people here to do is to step out of the shadows, to come to the space. It doesn't happen overnight but to come into the space with um, good intentions and with a willingness to ask difficult questions, whatever those questions may be, and to be willing to answer the questions. That does not mean that it happens at that particular moment, but the project is designed for such a period of time that maybe the, there are pieces where we need to return in order to address what is being asked. Okay, thank you. Well, um, William? Well, this is Jim. Oh, Jim. Jim uh, Sims, that's, go ahead. The, the notion of, of action, um, you know, because we in Western culture are very uh, uh, attached to action and less com contemplative and reflective kind of thinking and discourse. But I'd like to speak to the trauma that is so prevalent in the United States, particularly amongst black boys and black young men. Hey, Dan and Daniel, if you, don't, if you don't mind, I'll ask you to hold that thought. We will play another clip here in just a few seconds, and I'd like to continue the, the conversation and that path that you're headed down. Uh, so if you could just bear with us just for a second. Who told you you love your black preacher? 
continued salute to summer you just heard choice of colors sung by the iconic curtis mayfield and the impressions choice of colors was released in june 1969 and was written by curtis mayfield of the impressions the song hit number one on billboard's r&b chart for one week for our listening audience we're speaking with daniel Barron, jordan Schifres, maria hamilton abigunde and Pamela Brayboy Jackson from the Noah's Ark Project. But before resuming our conversation, here's another brief audio clip of noted African-American social activist Ruby Sales. She's sharing her thoughts on the topic of where does it hurt? You have said that you are aware of a question alive in the world today of young people, young black people, I think. How could black adults have thrown us into a den of people who don't love us? What, what's that? What, what are you describing there? Oh, that's very deep and very complicated. Let me just say something about Black Lives Matter. Although we are familiar with it within a contemporary context, that has always been the cry of African Americans from the point of in- captivity through enslavement to Southern apartheid and northern migration and de facto segregation was the assertion that black lives matter in a society that said that black people were property in a society that said that black lives did not matter. And part of what happened after post-civil rights of Southern Freedom Movement is that people thought that the movement, that what the movement had been about was jobs, position, status, when in fact it had not been about that at all. It had been about, when King talked about the mountaintop, he was talking about a higher level of consciousness. He was talking about a movement where we harmonize the I with the we and the we with the I. He was talking about a Pentecost moment. And so with that misunderstanding where the movement became materialized, the things that had really united black people and held us together in terms of being a part of a community where we were well guarded and well protected that many of us, many young people like myself, that we all left our homes never to look back. And in doing that, we left the black community unguarded. And the mission was no longer a beloved community, but the mission became integration. 
And what that meant was that generations of young African-American children were pushed to achieve this mission. And we sent them into places that were unsafe, where they were humiliated and their egos were decimated in structures, as Toni Morrison said, out there they don't love our children. And these generations of African-American children have felt abandoned. And there's a chasm that has grown up between younger and older African-Americans based on this sense of, of younger people of having felt that they were abandoned. And they don't understand why did we send them, young children, into places like that without any protection. <clears throat> that was another brief clip of civil rights icon and theologian Ruby Sales with On Being host Krista Trippett. Ruby Sales is the founder and director of the Spirit House Project. We now rejoin our conversation with Noah's Ark with Mr. Daniel Barron, Mr. Jordan Schiffers, Ms. Maria Hamilton Abegunde. I hope I got close. All right, and Pamela Brayboy Jackson. Um, we now continue the conversation, and Mr. Schiffers, I think you had some things you wanted to continue, and yeah. stay and stay with us, Daniel. We're we're still here. I think Daniel wanted to finish a thought, yeah. and then yeah. okay, go ahead, Daniel. Are you there? Yeah, thank yes, you. Yes, actually, thank you. Um, Ruby's comments there about Black Lives Matter and and the integration movement and the impact on on Black children is profoundly important. And as an educator of over 45 years, and all of those years committed to social justice and educational equity, um, I went into education because I really believe the American dream that any, anyone could achieve their full potential, and education was the path to success in, in American life. But what I found as an educator, that rather than leveling the playing field, which I thought it would do, that the longer kids were in school, the greater the distance, what's known as the gap, between black and white achievement became. People think it's because of children's backgrounds and their home life that black kids are underperforming. But in actuality, when kids enter kindergarten, they are closer in development and academic ability to their white peers than they are when they're in 10th grade. And I'll just give you one reason for that. You might be surprised if I were to ask you in what grade are most kids suspended in during their K-12 school years? It's kindergarten. And the overwhelming majority of those five-year-old kids are black boys. And they're being told as young children that they're not good enough to be with their peers. The others aren't safe around them. That's the beginning of the trauma of kids who come out of a black community and enter into an integrated school. And it's a profound problem. And we wonder when kids don't feel safe when their behaviors are misinterpreted as aggressive and hostile, and they're suspended and miss school and fall further behind, why we have such academic disparities in our country, and which leads to economic disparities, which leads to health disparities. And until we begin to heal this great divide, we're doomed as a nation, and that we can't wait much longer. So what I was saying before the break 
is that the healing process is an action. It's hard work. We have, we have the original sin of conquering our Native American indigenous forebears of this country and then enslaving millions of Africans over hundreds of years. And our country has never asked for, given an apology, offered any kind of affirmative action is seen as too dramatic of a hand, of a, of a lifting up of the possibilities for the black people in our country. Okay, thank we you, Dan. That divide. We, we, and, this, and this project is about learning the tools and strategies to do that deal. Well, thank you, sir. Um, I'm not so sure we'll ever get that apology or that acknowledgement. Um, um, and we'll move on with Mr. Schiffers. I believe you had a point. Well, I just, you know, uh, Ruby Sales' um, question about where does it hurt is something that we've talked a lot about in a design team. The design team is, is a collaboration, 50-50 uh, uh, black and white um, members. And we've talked about the issue of really difficult things coming up and what do we do with it? How do we work with people who are in pain in our presence? How we develop our capacity to be mindful of that and to handle it with care? And so I just wanted to say that that's you know, part of our conversation about training but also the facilitators will be meeting every couple months to look at how are we doing, um, how can we improve, are there things, you know, do we need more training in some areas? So we're mindful of this hurt. Okay, yes ma'am. The comment by Ruby Sales about the young people, mm one of the things that is really important is to have young people as part of this project <coughs> so that although there are a considerable number of people who are who have lived through the civil rights movement who are community activists young people particularly um, in the bloomington community are active in many different ways Several, a couple of years ago, in fact, there was an article in the Indiana Daily Student when a student held up, a black student held up a sign that said, we are human. And in my class, we spent some time actually contemplating what that meant, that in the 21st century, at this particular moment in time, that black students felt a need to have this sign and to have it public and to make this statement. Going back to the very beginning about black folk religion and black folks in religion and in the movement, it is not possible to make institutional change or societal change without a commitment from the people. And that's the people in general in large. That, that change does not come out of a boardroom. That change does not necessarily come out of a classroom, although it can be incited there and initiated there depending on who's teaching and the students present. But that change comes out of the lived experiences and the desire to change the experience, the desire to ask the question, does it have to be this way? Is this the only path and is this the only way? And those are the questions that are being asked right now by the project and 
young and old who are participating in it. Thank you. And just before we listen to our final clip, um, one of the things that, that came to my mind is how do we deal with those um, that are not wanting to dialogue, um, just close their minds as opposed to letting their hearts be touched or minds open, and how do we stay focused? Um, this reminds me of the pay it forward movement. If I do something nice, something nice, and it keeps continuing until it grows. Um, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more, but here's our next clip. What it means to be humans. <laughs> we live in a very diverse world. And to talk about what it means to be humans is to talk with a simultaneous tongue of universality and particularities. So as a black person, to talk about what it means is to talk about my experience as an African-American person but also to talk about my experience that transcends being an African-American to the universal experience. So I think it, we've got to stop speaking about humanity as if it's monolithic. We've got to wrap our consciousness around a world where people bring to the world vastly different histories and experiences, but at the same time, a world where we experience grief and love in some of the same ways. So how do we develop theologies that weave together the I with the we and the we with the I? Yeah, you can do it. And that was a final thought-provoking clip on civil rights uh, icon and theologian Ruby Sales with On Being, host Krista Trippett. Once again, Ruby Sales is the founder and director of the Spirit House Project. Uh, Jordan, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you because you had some information you wanted to pass that we had not quite touched on yet. Yeah, I just want to let uh, folks know how you can uh, get further information uh, you can call me at 812-325-7668 or email at j-o-r-d-o-c-h-i at yahoo.com or you can call Christine Glazer at 312-613-2165. Glazer1812 at gmail.com. Um, we are, uh, we have two important dates in terms of our, re of our recruiting. Uh, uh, the 25th of August and the 8th of September will be times where uh, there'll be the training for the facilitators in the morning and in the afternoon and of the participants all the participants that are would like to join this journey uh, will come for a three-hour training on the afternoons of those dates um, and the reason we're doing training is we want people to understand the intentionality 
with which we are approaching this and to have some skills. I know Abegunde talked about listening, uh, not only how to listen, how to acknowledge that you've heard and how to speak in such a way that you can be heard. Jordi, I'd like to add something if I could as we're talking about logistics and who might be interested. Um, this is an interfaith journey, but it's very inclusive. So anyone who feels a connection to the earth, a connection to other human beings, that knows that there's a power greater than themselves interacting with their lives, any spiritual path, um, e even atheists who are interested in exploring these topics from, from their perspective, they'll only add to the diversity of the discourse. So you don't have to be a member of a congregation or be attached to any particular faith tradition in order to be a member of this inclusive community and to find the love between differences, including your own. Well, thank you, and I'll pass this on to Ms. Pamela Boyd Jackson. Um, one of the things that I, I would just want to throw out there, and we could talk about this in many, many more segments, but one of the things that occurred to me is, who is this incumbent or has more incumbency on the majority population in order to help facilitate this? And that's not going to get answered tonight. Um, that's one of the things that... Uh, that, that well, was not, I was looking so. forward to an answer. Well, yeah, but I, I think Miss Jackson is going in another little make another point. Well, I think um, I think sort of to answer that question you uh, raised earlier, our audience actually includes those um, who are willing to have adult conversations about race, racism, privilege, and faith. Um, unfortunately, there's uh, an abundance of research that already shows us that closed-minded people only see and hear what they believe. Or the haters, and, as we call them. Well, okay. And, okay. So, <laughs> and so what we're trying to do, we're not really trying to change the minds of those uh, who have extreme views. Um, and that is actually a minority uh, in our community, especially. And so we're hoping that uh, the broader community of um, uh, well-meaning peoples, if you will, or individuals who have not had an opportunity to sort of find themselves in diverse groups um, who are who have that time then to sit down and have these uh, very important but adult conversations? Yeah. Um, so how is it? How many folks are self enlightened or self changed? Uh, which seems like this is where this is going. We're not trying to, but we expect it to change so we can progress. Well, am, we'll am we I, can tell you I that close? when it's over. We can gotcha. t we can give you that <laughs> metric after. <laughs> Kind of the post-test, if well, you will. Well, let me ask one more quick question because we got less than two minutes left. Um, you mentioned something about people with extreme views and you're not trying to change their minds. But when you do encounter those individuals, do they become a problem in their extremism? Uh, uh, do they end up being antagonists or, or what? Because by, by you being welcoming and so inclusive it only seems logical that you would eventually uh, uh, have someone like that to show up in your group I th it's a great question um, thank you so far you know I mean people have gotten triggered you know if I might say just around the issue of faith that's a good and way religion you know um, we are expecting that at least in terms of white folks, you know, there might be more folks who 
um, f- fill out the participation form than we have room for. Um, so in terms of something actually taking place, you were talking about if somebody being disruptive. Is that what you were getting at? Um, not necessarily. Uh, not accepting closed-minded more. Um, someone who is so extreme, extreme. in their views. Right. Well, the question is, I would, I would think that we would notice that during the uh, participation training part. We would notice that, and we could have a conversation so whether or not. So you them out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This has been a heck of a journey, but folks, this is Bring It On, and we're Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. We want to know what you think of current black issues, so please send your comments to Bring It On at WFHB.org. This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? If so, you're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. It's a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Simply go to Twitter.com and search for WFHB News, or you can always visit our news website at WFHB.org slash news. You've been listening to a special Bring It On broadcast highlighting an interview from this year that features several fascinating people and riveting topics. Bring It On is produced by yours truly, Clarence Boone. Production support comes from WFHB's news director, Wes Martin. Bring It On board's engineer for this evening was Wes Martin, and on behalf of the Bring It On team, We want to wish you and yours a happy new year. Be careful out there and be sure to tune in next Monday, January the 7th at 6 p.m. for another exciting Bring It On broadcast right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.